2: Hi, I'm Brian Safi. And
3: I'm Erin Gibson, and we're so excited to be filling in for Dan Savage this week.
2: If you don't know who we are, we host the Throwing Shade podcast on MaximumFun.org. And what we do is we take an issue that affects ladies.
3: And gays.
2: And we treat them with much less respect than they deserve. And Dan so graciously asked us to do the opening of the Savage Lovecast this week, so we're thrilled to do it.
3: And if you hadn't heard, if you hadn't heard the word Barack Obama this week... Sent out a love letter to all women of the world. A feminist manifesto via Glamour. Glamour
2: magazine. It'll be in the September issue, which what could be more glamorous than saying that?
3: Nothing. Full
2: Anna Wintour moment.
3: That's all. Different magazine, but same idea.
2: No, I know, but there was a documentary called The September Issue about all the inner workings of Anna Wintour's office. I
3: know about it. Yeah. I wrote it.
2: She's the only... Oh, you did? Yeah, it was scripted.
3: Yeah, it was all scripted. Oh, all I those... could have sworn
2: you it was don't a understand. documentary.
3: Grace, Anna—they're all s- phenomenal actresses. Uh,
2: they must be. Yeah, but so Barack Obama wrote this incredible essay, really a he for she essay. Yeah. From, H-
3: hashtag yes, all women.
2: B- pretty much, um, and said some some really cool things about about feminism and about equality. Uh, for women, and so...
3: You should read the whole thing, but, I I mean, we're, we'd like to break down kind of the, the highlights of it.
2: Can I just say quickly... Yes.
3: I... Did,
2: is everyone fully appreciative of what we've had the, the past eight no, years? No,
3: it's like anything. Now that he's about to be gone, everyone's like, no, 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 no. It's been so good, you it's can't been leave.
2: And I know that I think for a lot of people, they felt that it started off sort of slowly, but, man, has it picked up. And... You look at Barack and Michelle Obama, and honestly, like, I feel like, do I really hope we know how lucky we've had it? So smart, so beautiful, so funny, so sexy, so glamorous. That picture of them, the Trudeaus, didn't oh. you want in on that?
3: <laughs> I've never, I've, look, to each his own, I've never wanted to be in a foursome with, with, the, political royalty until that moment right there.
2: 100%. Although it would have been a five sum, So you would have had to kick someone out for it to be.
3: I know I know th- I I watch them have sex but I just jerk <laughs> oh. off on the side. That's my idea of a foursome. Fair. So um he says a couple of things. He starts off by 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 uh basically saying like, you know, we I, I think this is a, an important way to start out like it's very easy to start complaining about all the things that are wrong right yes. now and there are a lot of things wrong in a lot of areas. F- feminism being only one of them. Yeah. But the idea- Another
2: being that my shoe size is, I'm in a half size right now.
3: Oh, and one foot?
2: And so if you're buying, yeah. So if you're buying, sh- you know, in other words, like they still, we still haven't figured out shoes.
3: Exactly. So how are we going to figure out gay rights?
2: Exactly. You know,
3: feminism. It's an uphill battle. Racial equality. Um, But he says, he starts off by by acknowledging like in the past, if you look at the past hundred years, past 50 years, and um, really his... The past eight years he's been in office, life has been made significantly better for, uh, he says, for my daughters than it was for my grandmothers. And I say that not just as president, but also as a feminist. And I think it's so important that he kicks it off that way. People are very afraid of the word feminist still, weirdly, even though – even post-Beyonce VMAs. Yeah. When Beyonce – We
2: live in a post-Beyonce VMA world, and we need to accept that. When the
3: woman who sang Bills – Yes. Stands in front of a sign that says feminist. No one should be afraid to identify that way. No. Ever again. He also
2: said something that I thought was beautiful. He said, when everybody is equal, we are all more free. He went on to praise uh, this past century's um, American women and the progress they've made and how how far we have to go. He said that it was important to his daughters that he be a feminist because now that's what they expect of all men. Which, by the way, those dog. I mean, again, just the perfect family. I mean,
3: everybody, just doing it right. I love that she went to Lollapalooza
2: instead of the DNC, and people were so mad about it. I would it.
3: have, too. But of course. Um, her, dad's, her dad's out. You know what I mean? Yeah. I also think it's, a. Uh, there's another thing he said about how important it is to acknowledge how far we've come. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't talk about all the progress we've made, if we only think about the stuff that is wrong, it is a complete disservice to anyone who spent their lives fighting for the- for for equality
2: 100%
3: hundreds of women have come died put their sashes on said I want to vote Exactly. We can't think about the sash ladies. No. I mean, we can't forget the sash ladies. No. And I know they're called suffragettes, but I call them sash ladies. Because I think it's more respectful.
2: A hundred percent. Yeah. That is when wearing a sash was considered progressive. It is absolutely not. Considered... It's lost.
3: Now it's, bride, it's bridesmaids, it's penis straws. That's so it.
2: That's it. He said, we need to keep changing the attitudes that raises our girls to be demure and our boys to be assertive, that criticizes our daughters for speaking out and our sons for shedding a tear. We need to keep changing. Changing the attitude that punishes women for their sexuality and rewards men for theirs.
3: I agree. And by the way, bringing men into this issue because I mean, he needed. I think he said it up top. I think subtly, and then said it basically flat out. Is that it's not just how women fight for their rights. It's a, it's about how people help them fight for their rights. And also, let's look at the way boys are treated too. These like binary, like black and white ideas of what gender and and. Anything stereotypes of, of what women should be, what men should be, are dangerous for everybody. Yeah, it's and especially as we know, dangerous if you're, you know, if you're kids, if you're divorced and you're a dad and you're ki- and you want to babysit your kids, but you know that you can't have custody and you've got to dress like a woman.
2: Are you talking about Mrs. Doubtfire? Yes,
3: I'm just saying, like it's important to get out of those things so that you can masquerade as a woman, right? So you can see your kids. So
2: that's what you took from the Obama. Yes. Oh, essay. sorry. That
3: was the whole thing I took.
2: Got it. Fair. Can we talk about the major disappointment this week?
3: Well, and what bad timing—the Sarah Jessica Parker interview <laughs> and Mary Claire. So Sarah Another Jessica Parker. Another ladies' magazine that's like not calling her out on this.
2: Sarah Jessica Parker, Sex in the City, upcoming divorce. That
3: by the way, I didn't. The not... show. The show. The show. <laughs> the show. The show.
2: She and Matthew Broderick have never been better. Sarah Jessica Parker recently said. For Mary Claire, I am not a feminist. I don't think I qualify. I believe in women and I believe in equality. But I think there's... So
3: she should have stopped and then been like, oh, wait, wait, wait. No, I do do know the definition of feminism. That is
2: exactly the definition of feminism. Advocating
3: for the equal rights of women. But I think there's
2: so much that needs to be done that I don't even want to separate anymore. I'm so tired of separation that don't do a show called Divorce. (laughs) I I (laughs) just want people... I just want people fire. to be treated equally. That is exactly what feminism is. And I have to say I think
3: I don't even know what her point is. Is her point that everyone needs to be to be like cuz she calls herself a humanist, which is like fine. <laughs> I'm th- great for you for being for the human race.
2: I think what she's saying is I think when you put a label like feminism on something it Acts is more of a separator. That it's, yeah, but
3: that's but that's
2: but see that's the same argument for saying it's,
3: the, it's being like oh, all, all lives, lives
2: matter. matter. It's the same thing, which we just don't live in that time. In a perfect world, that everyone is being paid equally, that everyone is socially equal. That that I don't know. We've had just as many women presidents as we have had men presidents. Um, wait, what do you mean? Just that it's an equal world. That, oh, like in
3: this world, I was this, like, wait, we've had that. Oh yeah, don't you I've know? Been in
2: a cave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That in that perfect in that perfect world, sure. Yeah. Maybe then we could start using By language way, like this. We're just not there. I think her intentions were good. I think she was she meant the right thing. It's just this is not a world we live in.
3: I think I have a different take on it. I, I agree with what you're saying, but I think that there are women out there. There's a generation of women who, I'm gonna say it, are mostly white, liberal, you know, elitist kind of women who've been rich too long. And who really don't understand the struggles and why feminism is actually necessary for, on a very base level and somehow fear that word because they were taught that it means like militant, like dick people who just want run around. Burning and, your bra. Yeah. Right. But being a feminist does not mean you're an anti-maninist or something. You know, it does. It's not it's not one or the other. It's well, not that's like good that.
2: because I am a meninist and you're I a meninist? fully believe in the rights, equal rights of men to women.
3: Oh, Brian, I don't know if you're going to be able to handle the guests today, Tegan and Sarah.
2: Coming up on the Magnum version of the show, we have twin queer pop stars, Tegan and Sarah. So exciting. Dan, thank you so much for having us on the show this week. We really appreciate it. Um, Again, our podcast is Throwing Shade, and we're actually on tour right now.
3: We're coming to Seattle and a lot of other cities.
2: Yeah, we're doing 21 cities, so we're probably going to be in a city near you. You can go to www.throwingshade.com slash tour for all the tour dates. And
3: if you can't make it, just give us a listen. That's
2: right. And uh, yeah, get excited for Tegan and Sarah. Hi, Dan,
4: a uh, 26 year old male living in the Midwest. Currently, my dad is going through the beginnings of a divorce for the second time um, with my now current stepmom. I'm having a real t- hard time dealing with this because they are choosing to place all the blame on me. I have been staying with them for a little while to try and get back on my feet. I had a really rough year last year and, uh, it's not going well. And now they're, uh, saying that they are getting divorced because of me as a, uh, because my, uh, step is saying that she doesn't want me involved in her life in any way, shape or possible. Um, I don't want to, to be involved in their, their life, obviously, and I, I worry about my dad. It's, I'm just not sure if it, if it is my fault in all of this. It's, I, I feel like they're just sort of using the excuse of me staying there to circumvent their own problems and, and push the, the self-destruct button on their own marriage, or at least she is. What what can I do to make the situation? Any help would be appreciated.
0: Lots of people your age are living at home these days. You really can't pick up an issue of the New York Times without finding stories about millennials moving back in with mom and dad because of student loan debt, or multi generational households being the new thing, or you know, lots of stories after the two thousand and eight economic collapse, the Great Recession, about people. Losing their homes, having to move back in with dad and stepmom. So your circumstance isn't unique. And what you've put your dad and stepmom through isn't unique. But I don't know. I can't say whether or not you were the straw that broke the camel's back. You were the last straw. I don't know what it's like to live with you. I don't know how long your stepmother had your father all to herself. Maybe realizing that dad came bundled with responsibilities to an adult child was too much for her. And she had to pull the ripcord and it is slightly or partly about you, but in a way also about her and what she's willing to endure or put up with or shoulder the responsibility she's willing to shoulder to be with your dad. And maybe she didn't sign up for kids, even adult kids living in the house. And this is one of the reasons she wants to go. And maybe a good reason why she is the wrong person wife second or third for your father and so it is for the best that their marriage might be ending but i think what you should do in this case is pretend that you weren't told what you were told because really they shouldn't have involved you in this i don't think necessarily they should have said oh by the way we're getting divorced your fault i don't think you say that to kids of any age while at the same time accepting that maybe you did have some role in this your existence did not by Not necessarily through any fault of your own or any actions you took. You were in a tough spot. Your dad helped you out. Your stepmom, not down. What can you do about that? Your dad's first loyalty as your parent, as your biological parent, as your father was to you. And he demonstrated that. And stepmom's going to peace out. You'll always have your dad. Be grateful. Be thankful. You guys can double date once you're on your feet.
5: Hi, Dan. I am a 22-year-old and I have a question about my friends. Uh, My mom died when I was 19 and it was fairly sudden and really traumatic for me. And I have a great group of friends who were all very supportive and very loving for about a year after she died. And then after we hit the one-year mark, it's almost started to feel to me like they were tired of hearing about it and they were tired of my grieving. And I know that it's logically, I know that they just wanted me to be okay because they love me, but it really just felt like a rejection of my grief and that I had to get over it and I didn't know how to. So I tried to fake it and I tried to be okay around them. And then I ended up just isolating myself from them more and more and since then I've just sunk deeper and deeper into this depression and now I'm talking to a therapist about it, but I've really been cutting myself off from these people for about a year and a half. And I feel like I could never even talk about her in a non grieving way to them, which made it almost feel like she had died all over again, that I had to just completely cut my mother out of my life. And So I'm trying, I know that not being with my friends is probably a factor in my depression. So I'm just, I'm trying to rebuild those relationships. And I just wanted your advice on how to start that. Should I tell them about what I've been going through? And if I should, can you tell me a way to do that where it doesn't sound like I'm attacking them for not dealing correctly with a problem that no 20-somethings should know how to deal with? Or do I just continue to fake it until it's all okay?
0: First I want to say I'm so sorry for your loss and I can empathize even though I didn't lose my mother uh, as early in life as you lost yours. I lost my mother when I was in my 40s. It's really traumatizing. It's really crushing. I was really close to my mom. Uh, sounds like you were really close to your mom too and there were months there that I was just a basket case afterwards, you know, standing in a grocery store and thinking of my mother for a second and It's crying in the grocery store like a grieving person. So I get it. I empathize. I hear you. But tracking the timeline here, you were 19 when your mother died. You're 22 now. Your friends listened to you and grieved with you and indulged you as they should for that year. As they should, period. Friends, are. we want them in our lives to be indulgent of us and to help us, but also they're there to be indulged by us and helped by us and to experience pleasure and joy with us. But they did that for a year. They were doing all the right things, everything you needed them to do for a year. And then after a year, you got this sense from them that they were ready to move on or expected you to be ready to move on. And now it's a year and a half later. So it's two and a half, three years since your mother's death. And it sounds like you're still in a place of white, hot, intensely felt grief and the appropriate person to be speaking to, if that's where you are two, two and a half, three years after the death of a parent, even at your age, even as young as you were when your mother died, the appropriate person to be really leaning on, really depending on, really unpacking all of that with is a therapist. I'm really glad that you're seeing a counselor. And a therapist now because there are loads that we can expect our friends to bear. And then there are loads that may be too much for our friends to bear. And we need to call in the cavalry. We need to bring in a professional. If our grief is crushing and overwhelming us, it may be crushing and overwhelming our friendships as well. And we have a right to expect people to rush to our side in an emergency, in a crisis when we're grieving We don't have a right to expect them to remain at our side indefinitely or eternally because they have their own emergencies. They have their own crises in their lives. They have their own emotional needs. And I don't want to make friendship sound commodified. I scratch your back. You scratch mine. But there is a give and take there. There is a sort of circularity to it. I'm here for you when you need me and you're here for me when I need you. But if you – three years after your mother's death, two and a half years after your mother's death are stuck in a place of such intense grief that you can't be there for them or meet their needs or place this grief yet. You never get over it. I'm still not over it. I listened to your call and I got choked up and weepy because it was reminding me of my pain and it was reminding me of my mother. You really never get past this. But, it needs to find a place in your emotional life, and your psyche, a find a place in your friendships, where it is a place you go occasionally. And I go there occasionally with my friends. If you can get to a place where you are loving, giving, attentive, indulgent yourself, fun to be with, we also hang out with people that we like and our friends for pleasure But if you can get to that place and then every once in a while you want to say, hey, I just need to talk about my mom for a minute because I'm feeling sad, I bet they would go there. And if they didn't go there, when you said something like that, yeah, maybe not friends. Also, look at the time of life we're talking about here, 19 when your mother died, you're 22 now. A lot of people at that stage, the transition really from high school to college, move if people go to college. Now everybody goes to college. Now everybody has to go to college. But people move they, their social networks expand. They meet new people. It is a stage of life where we tend to shed some friends. And for that to coincide for you with the loss of your mother and this grief, what a horrible coincidence, right? Because you may be attributing to your loss, to your grief, the, the ends of these relationships or the withering of some of these relationships that may not have withered. That may have withered in the same way, even if your mother hadn't died, even if you weren't struggling with this grief, just because of this moment, this time in your life. So I think you really need to take a look at these relationships, setting aside, if you can, the prism of your mother's death and your grief and the impact that had on them. And just look at them and assess them and ask yourself, are these people that at 22 I would have been friends with still? Are these people I would have lost Anyway, regardless of my mother's death or my grief or this place that I was stuck for so long, are these relationships where we would just would have gone our separate ways because of life, because of circumstance, because of logistics, because of new experiences? Because you went to this college and I went to that college and you did that year abroad and you got a boyfriend and moved away with him for a while. Sometimes relationships, friendships naturally without anybody being an asshole, without anybody being malicious of their own due course End. And perhaps those ends coincided with your period of grief and you are misattributing callousness or malice to your friends or misattributing the ends of those relationships to your behavior or how grief stricken you were during that stage. I really examined those two things, but good that you're talking to a therapist now. Also good that you are reaching out to these people, reaching out and trying to reestablish these friendships. Another thing that happens at this stage, 1922, you sometimes shed friends in the chaos and excitement of going off to college or whatever, getting out of high school, that you wish you hadn't shed. And somebody has to be the first to reach out and say, hey, I would really like to reconnect. And then it picks up where it left off. So I'm glad you're reaching out. Good thing you're reaching out. That's not going to be in every case. You may not hear that in every case. You're unlikely to hear, fuck you, I wish you hadn't called, but not in every case when you attempt to reconnect with someone is that connection going to return. But you can make an effort. You can also make new friends. You can form new relationships. And while you're working on this, work with your therapist on placing your grief, on keeping it not contained, uh, not discarding the memory of your mother, but living with it, walking with it, honoring it, but keeping it in proportion, not allowing it to overwhelm you. You can have it and experience it and live it and remember her and always grieve her. It is, it has been seven or eight years. I am still grieving my mother's death without it swamping every moment, without it dominating every conversation, without it being the focus of all of your needs for support or indulgence from your friends. And that may require a bit of an effort on your part. That may require a little faking it till you make it. And that's not necess- that whole fake it till you make it thing, it has a bad rap because we don't like to think of ourselves as fake. And accusing someone of faking it isn't exactly a compliment. But sometimes going through the motions, pretending you're okay with something, helps you get to that place where you are okay with it. Not okay with your mother's death. You will never be okay with your mother's death. That's not what I mean. I mean to that place where you are centered and have achieved a balance and are at peace with mortality, which is shitty and unfair. Mortality sucks. It's for the birds. But we have to, over the course of our lives, reconcile ourselves to that.
4: Hey,
6: Dan. um, I'm a caller from the East Coast, 22-year-old male bisexual. So, I've been in a relationship for the past few months, about four months now, and my girlfriend, she keeps getting ridiculously drunk and losing control of her mouth in no the way where she to just say things that are just totally off color. And even though, like, we'll have a talk when she's in these states of mind, um, she doesn't remember it the next day. She doesn't remember the talk. She doesn't remember what she said or anything she did. So... Um, I mean, we talk in the Silver State of Mind the next day, and this has happened four times now, four separate times, you know. And so, um, I mean, everything else with Fox and this is great. Sex is great, and uh, we click really well. We're both really into music, and um, we'll pursue music careers together. She's a teacher; she's a wonderful person. This this doesn't take away from her being a fantastic person in any way. It's just this one thing that I, it fucks me up. Because how can someone tell you that they love you so much and then treat you like shit? you know, and put them, willingly put themselves in these state of mind, And then, you know, think that they could say, oh, I was drunk. It won't happen again. And then it does.
0: Don't hang out with your girlfriend when she gets drunk. Period. The end. You know, when she's reaching that tipping point, you know, when it's gone from a couple of drinks and a buzz to that place where she's not going to remember what she said, or she's going to use how drunk she is as an excuse to say things that she wouldn't say sober and be mean and vicious and treat you like shit in front of people remove yourself from those situations tell her the next time you have a conversation the next time it happens it's the last time it happens tell her this happened again you said this you said that you don't remember you apologize you say it won't happen again the next time you drink it happens or usually when you drink it happens you say it won't happen again but it keeps happening again so here's the new deal the new deal is When you are getting to that point where I think this is about to happen, that's the end of the evening for me. I'm out. And go. Mean it and go. And she can stay wherever it is you guys are, at the party, at the bar, with other friends. She can stay. Or she can leave with you. Maybe not go over the drunken falls into shit-talking bay, but go. You don't have to be there. You don't have to be her punching bag when she's drunk.
7: And I have probably the worst taste in women. <laughs> I don't always know that I'm doing it wrong, though. I either pick clones of my narcissistic mother or I pick women that seem amazing and then they just turn into monsters. And I try my best to be honest and righteous and GGG and just do everything I can for them, you know, because I want it to work, and I want to be a good partner, and I realize that the, the common denominator is me, so I'm doing everything I can to try to, like, fix me and be good, And but it always goes to shit, and I just don't know what to do, and I'm at a point right now after my last breakup where my girlfriend broke into my Facebook account and posted a bunch of stuff on there. And all my friends and family, you know, saw it obviously, and I'm completely humiliated and ashamed. I, I'm honestly thinking about just giving up. <laughs> just giving a woman all together and just working and working out and seeing sex workers if I need release. I mean, I make good money. I'm not a bad looking guy, I, I am pretty good shape. I feel like I shouldn't be having this much trouble.
0: I was calling because I wanted to ask how many shitty relationships are we talking about here, and how old are you
7: well i'm thirty seven mm-hmm. and gosh, I think they've all been shitty if I think about it. Uh- <laughs>
0: Well, you you use the phrase common denominator to describe yourself, which means you are an attentive listener of the Savage Lovecast because I say that all the time. When people call and they say every relationship I've ever been in has been awful, I'm like, hey, you're the common denominator, right? So you're familiar with that phrase. You must be then familiar with every relationship you're ever going to be in is going to fail until one doesn't. Exactly. Which yeah. means and, and I get that. That it's not unheard of for somebody to have a string of bad or failed relationships. And when a relationship, quote unquote, fails, and not every relationship that ends is necessarily a failure, also something else I like to impact. But when a relationship ends, sometimes there's hurt feelings, sometimes there's recrimination, sometimes there's accusations and anger And it can end up feeling like, oh, my God, I'm terrible at this relationship and everyone I'm in a relationship with is a monster. Hopefully not every woman you've ever dated or broken up with has gone to the lengths the last one did and broken into your Facebook or something similar and attempted to ruin or humiliate you. Uh,
7: Well, I will say, you know, there's been a common string of um, violation of privacy. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's something that has happened pretty consistently. and so i
0: like somebody digging through your email digging through your phone digging through your online stuff
7: looking at my journal like
0: are you are you giving somebody cause to be concerned are you just dating a string of paranoids and sometimes that happens sometimes we pull the short straw again and again and sometimes it feels like we pulled the same short straw again and again but i think
7: it's a little bit of both to be quite honest i'm sure like I have, uh, like I'm not the best looking guy in the world and I'm not like, I don't make the most money in the world, but I make a little bit of money and I'm a little bit attractive. And so I,
0: we should all be so lucky. And so,
7: and I don't, um, I don't know how to put this, but like, I don't, uh, I don't really hold a lot of stock in attractiveness when it comes to my partners. Um, and so I guess Some folks would say I tend to date down. I don't really feel like that. I just feel that I, I don't know how to put it, but like I place more stock in, you know, how the person treats me. Their character, Um, which is what what
0: everybody says that they want. Okay. But but maybe this can induce a little paranoia on the part of the women you're dating. If they're rattling around going, he could do so much better than me. Why is he with me?
7: This tends to be the common <laughs> the common uh, 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 comment that I get from them all. Why are you with me? And the, you could do so much better. And this is yada the, yada yada.
0: And this is a two edged sword because what people say is they want men or they want everybody to be more like you, willing to see past the superficial and date somebody for who they are as a person on the inside. And on the other hand, some people date down because then they're in the power position. Because then there's this dynamic in the relationship where they know you could do better and you know they know that you could do better. And it can be a way that (laughs) someone attempts to control the other person. I'm the hotter one. I'm the one who makes more money, my way or the highway, because you're not going to get somebody better looking than me. You're not going to get somebody better off than me. So what I want, what I say goes. But it doesn't sound like you're doing that part of it.
7: No, I'm not doing that part of it. But I am doing the safe like this is a safe person i can admit that
0: a safe person how do you mean
7: well like you said i am perhaps a little bit better looking than you i perhaps make a little bit more money than you Okay, you. This, I'm not going to treat you bad. This is but it. You're someone whom.
0: Okay, this is it.
7: You, I don't have to worry about.
0: <laughs> you, you are doing this. You are inducing a kind of paranoia and insecurity in the women that you're dating. I'm trying not to, though. <laughs> like,
7: I, I know I, I'm trying to reassure them. I'm trying to like, hey, and, and that's all fine.
0: Good. And that's fine. It's one thing to be able to date anybody because you're willing to date somebody attractive or somebody average or somebody objectively not as attractive as you because what you really are concerned with is character and who they are as a person and it's another thing to say i date down because i want more power and control and somebody may be grateful to have been dated downed upon or dated down upon but in the end they're going to chafe against the perhaps subconscious sense that they're being controlled or that this is a power play and it's going to make them feel insecure and crazy and maybe act crazy. I don't want to say you're the author of this because you would expect somebody would be happy to have you. But if you're attempting to manipulate them because they ought to be happy to have you, people rebel against that kind of manipulation. People lash out. It's not,
7: it's not power and control. Because that's obviously, I won't say obviously, but that's honestly not my thing. It's not power and control. It's security. Like I, is, is it
0: getting you security, though?
7: Well, there you go.
0: No, no it's not. <laughs> Whatever you're doing, you know, if this is a pattern, it, it's one thing to, to take an honest look at. You know what you've been doing and what you've been getting as a result, and kind of relationships you've been having, and really take an honest look at it. Really unpack it, maybe with some friends who watched the whole thing unfold, and go, okay, that was just I rolled the dice three times and it came up snake t- snake eyes three times in a row, rare, but that fucking can happen. But it's another thing to look at that and think, all right, I keep doing X, Y, and Z, and I keep getting shit, shit, and shit for it. So maybe X, Y, and Z is the wrong strategy, and you should stop intentionally going out there. Implicitly, if not explicitly, nagging women in a way. I hate to use that pickup artist lingo, but if there's some I undercurrent, hate I hate it too. That's why I never talk about that pickup artist shit on the show or in the in my column. I, I just fucking hate it, and I don't want to give it any more gas. It seems to be dying off. I don't want to like reinflate it. But if women are getting the sense that one of the reasons you've picked them, like you picked your other girlfriends, is because they are inadequate or should be grateful to have you, because you're slumming every time you throw your dick in them. <laughs> people are gonna, people Good are God. like, in the long run, that's gonna make somebody, in the that would make me crazy. There needs to be a kind of not complete equality or basic equality, and sometimes inequalities can be stabilizing. I look at my own relationship. Terry's a lot hotter than me. I make more money than he does. Those are kind of two stabilizing influences. There are times I look at him and think, I couldn't do better. And there are times I think he must look at me and think, he pays the bills. And those get us through the like <laughs> get us through the fights, the breakup level fights. Like, I'm not going to break up with him. I can't do better than him. And he looks at me and goes, I'm not going to break up with him because I don't want to live on the street or whatever it might be. Right? So that, I'm not saying that people have to have equal incomes, equal levels of attractiveness, equal levels of everything. But there needs to be... Some, some level of inequality on both sides. Some Each person needs to bring something to the table that the other doesn't or the other brings less of, and that can be stabilizing. But if you're just, you make less money than me, you're not as hot as me, you're not th- as this as me, you're not as that as me, I'm going to date you because where are you going to go? You know where they're going to go? They're going to go nuts is where they're going to go. So you can find somebody who's uh. got a great character Maybe she should make more money than you do, or you can find somebody who's hot. Maybe she makes less money than you do. You can find some like find somebody who brings a variety of things to the table where they got some shit going on that you don't, and you got some shit going on that they don't. And you, what's that hoary old phrase I used to use in marriage land? You complete each other. You complement each other. It doesn't <laughs> oh sound God. like you're dating women where it doesn't sound like you're dating women where you complement each other. It sounds like you're dating women. That you're selecting who should just l- live in eternal, an eternal state of gratitude to you for condescending to fuck them. Like people, that'll make somebody crazy. Oh. That'll, that'll make, so- that'll push somebody over the edge. Somebody will then retaliate. Because against you, like that woman, I'm not blaming you. People shouldn't go on people's Facebook profiles and try to fuck up their relationships with family and friends and colleagues. That's shitty and uncalled for. People shouldn't snoop, although asterisk, sometimes snooping retroactively is permissible, depending on what you found out while you were snooping. And be careful when you snoop, you might find out things you can never unknow that you didn't need to know, maybe don't want to know. That said. But there
7: was nothing there. Like, I was, I'll be honest, I was completely faithful to this girl. Like. I right. was over the moon for this girl. Like- Which is
0: great, but on some level, that girl got that sense that you could take her or leave her and she couldn't.
7: I really couldn't though.
0: The prescription here that I'm going to give you, stop intentionally dating down. That doesn't mean like, go hit on Donald Trump's ex-wife or whatever. It doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't mean pursue women. Not my type. Who, doesn't mean like, go after a Kardashian like Date women who are interested in you, and you're interested in them. Stop dating down intentionally. Stop finding. Stop targeting women who you feel should be grateful to have you, as if that's a stabilizing influence. Because you now know that it isn't. That it's a destabilizing thing to 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 select women with the, that criteria, and to also tell yourself every relationship fails until one doesn't. Maybe you just drew some short straws. You're going to change your approach a little bit, but you're not going to. Live in despair, cut off your dick, only go see sex workers, give up on relationships. You're going to approach them a little differently and see if you don't get a slightly different outcome. Okay?
7: God, that is terrifying, but okay.
0: <laughs> it? You know what? You know why it's terrifying? Because you're going to have to give up a little bit of power and control. And that's what a relationship requires giving up some power and control, ceding that to that other person. If you can't handle that kind of fear and terror, then maybe you should just go to sex workers for the rest of your life. But Fair I think enough. but I think you can handle it. I guess we're going to find out. <laughs> Good luck, man. Thank you.
7: <laughs> Thanks, Dan.
1: Hey, Dan. I'm a lesbian who lives on the East Coast. And I'm a professor, college professor, and I work in a department where I'm, I'm the only dyke um, but there's a number of gay men in my department, and actually a number of gay men who are students in my department, and which is wonderful. When I first started the job, I thought it was utopia. I was like, here I am with my queer brethren. It's awesome. I experience uh, a lot of anti-lesbian sentiments, uh, not necessarily directed at me, Um, So, you know, occasionally there's jokes about, like, tool belts and, you know, folk music and ugly shoes and uh, ha-ha, yeah, 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 coming from gay men. But there's also a lot of sort of anti-lesbian crap that comes up in daily conversation. Lesbian is sort of the, the punchline a lot of times, not only for students but for faculty members. And I think the attitude is, You know, we're gay guys, and we can do this. We can say this kind of thing. Um, It's totally acceptable. And I'm a historian. I believe in, you know, uh, solidarity based on our kind of collective experience of marginalization, that, you know, we're all in this together, LGBTQ, we are all, you know, we're an acronym as one. And I'm not seeing a lot of that, you know, I'm seeing a lot of kind of that, you know, gay male, I don't even know how to put it without sounding like a jerk, but, you know, it's just this kind of anti-lesbian stuff and anti-trans stuff too, um, which, you know, again, whenever that stuff comes up and if I say something, what I get a lot of is, oh, you know, we're, we're a queer-friendly school, blah, 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 you know, and I'm, I'm worried you know, about saying something. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to disrupt anything. But how do I intervene in this way, in a way that is not going to, you know, make me risk losing my employment?
0: The way you do this without losing your job is to push back against these comments, against the lesbophobia and transphobia that you were encountering from your gay male colleagues. But with a humorous approach and with a smile on your face, unfortunately, wait till you have tenure. Once you have tenure in your academic field, once you have tenure, peel the fucking bark off them. You can napalm them. But if you're concerned that any pushback now or a firm pushback or an angry pushback that may play into the humorless lesbian stereotype and then become fodder for more jokes could cost you your job, you shouldn't have to. But strategically, you might want to. Take a humorous, friendly approach and push back as a friend and give as good as you get in those circumstances, but to shut it down. I recall a million years ago when I came out and I was basically one of the only gay people in a theater department at a major state university. That's how late people used to come out. This coming out middle school shit didn't happen when I was coming out. People came out late in college or after college and I was really one of the only fags around and people would say sometimes jokingly straight people straight friends would say homophobic things as a joke sometimes hurtful and say we're processing their feelings about having this giant faggot in their midst as a part of their social circle and I could blow up or I could get angry but that wasn't in me what I would do is I would say similarly proportionately heterophobic things to them That would blow their minds, that would make them laugh, that would help them to see that what they just said about gay people or gay men or gay sex was redonkulous and insulting. You know, one of my straight housemates said something about gay men being effeminate and prissy and at the same time sleazy and voracious. I would make a joke about straight men being filthy and gross, ball scratching, knuckle dragging, dumb fucks, and just push it right back in their faces. They said something homophobic even as a joke i would say something heterophobic not in a slashing way but like with a little smile on my face just pushing back they would invoke some stereotype about gay men i would invoke a stereotype about them they would say the word faggot which is a word that i don't necessarily have a problem with and not all cases not all instances was it problematically deployed or used but i would say breeder And they would look at me with a little bit of shock on their faces because they didn't know that we had a hate term for them. They didn't know that we had our own lingo. They didn't know that we could put them down too. And it would make them laugh and think. And from your position of insecurity, professional insecurity at this moment, get tenure, peel the bark off them. But from your position of relative insecurity at this moment, professional insecurity, That's probably your best approach, as galling as it might be to have to take that approach, is to make them laugh and make them think and push back that way. That's how you help these guys see that what they're doing is not okay, at least not okay with you, and that it's problematic without losing your job or losing the support and friendship of your colleagues. I was able to push back against all these breeders I lived with without losing their friendship. I know it can be done. It helped that they weren't in positions of authority over me. They weren't on my tenure committee, but I know it can be done. I was able to do it as a teenager. You can certainly do it as an adult.
8: Hi, Dan. Hi, Tech Savvy at Risk Use. I am a 27-year-old cis lesbian. I'm calling because I recently got out of an eight-and-a-half-year relationship. So I actually have two questions about dating. I've never dated ever and I'm kind of on a learning curve here. I got on OkCupid, I got on Tinder, and I've gone out for a couple dates, nothing serious. Uh, It's really fun. Do you think these days monogamy is considered a discussion? I mean, is non-monogamy the default? Do I have to tell someone the first or second time I see them, like, hey, by the way, I went out on four other dates this week with other people. I'm probably not in that particular phrasing but is that something that I should be upfront about so that's my first question and my second question is I have been playing in a kind of queer band for about six years and we're definitely not famous or anything but we do have a following in certain queer circles in the area where I live and I've already gotten a couple messages on Okay Cupid from people who know me from my music first and um I specifically got one from this kind of younger person who I don't really feel comfortable carrying on a sort of flirtation with because she's definitely too young for me. And um, she kind of approached me in a very fangirly way, which is very flattering and very sweet, but not what I'm looking for in someone who I want to date necessarily or, you know, have sex with. And there's a very solid chance that I'm going to run into this person in the future. So I don't really want to ghost her, which I have learned is like a kind of a thing that people do because she might come to a show and be like, what the hell were you thinking? I thought, you know, we had a little repartee going, um, but I don't really want to be a jerk who says, Oh, I'm not interested in you. I'm trying to figure out how to sort of balance this public persona of like a person in a band who people like hopefully, (laughs) um, versus sort of this person who's trying to date and to get out into the world which I am both the people, obviously, and I'm not sure what to do.
0: Joining me by phone to help field this question, Tegan and Sarah, they're a Canadian pop duo. They're identical twin sisters. They're multi-instrumentalists that write insanely catchy pop songs, and they're both queer. Their current release is Love You to Death, which came out in June and has been playing in my house nonstop because my husband and I are huge fans since then, and their three-month North American tour starts in September. So let's just get right to this balancing public persona of a person in a band versus person trying to date. Sarah, how do you do that?
9: <laughs> well, I've, I have been off the dating market for a while. So, I will I want to just say that I haven't ever used any of the dating uh apps or websites that so many people use, but I've been uh I've been around enough people, good friends, my mother, uh who have used the apps uh successfully and i sort of envy them because i i sort of have this like secret desire now i'm totally happy in my relationship but i do sort of like have this uh fantasy that i get to be on those apps and i'd be really good at it like i i feel like i will, it's like a it's like a horrible narcissism like creating i missed out on that whole opportunity to like create a profile and showcase like how uh, desirable I am, both intellectually, you know, and physically. So I actually think the dating apps are amazing. And I feel very transparent and excited to like, show off who I am on a regular basis. So I feel like it would be um, yeah, I think they're I think they're so amazing. I love that.
0: But even if you haven't been on dating apps, you must have had to handle the approached in a fangirl way by a fangirl with a crush, who Dating apps, real yeah. no dating apps would like to get with you. And how do you shut that down? If indeed you're in a relationship, you want to shut that down, you need to shut that down. How do you handle that gracefully?
9: Well, when I was on the market and dating, I I sort of recognized really quickly that I'm the type of person who doesn't like it when people pursue me. I mean, that's a big part of whatever my attraction MO is, is that I actually like to, I like to pursue and usually be rejected. That's kind of like <laughs> my unhealthy... Uh, my unhealthy thing. But it's funny because I actually feel like our fans are very respectful and, and it and it hasn't happened so often that I really... Like, I never really had to develop any kind of method to, like, you know, shut down, you know, inquiring fans or but people who never, are interested in dating me.
10: But you've never been on a, a dating app as Sarah from Tegan and Sarah. I mean, would that even be possible?
9: I don't know. I, I will say this. I I have had fans or people inquire about my status and my relationship status. And I've always been very, uh, mysterious and sort of polite. Like I don't like to shut people down or be mean or anything like that, but I've always sort of had an attraction to people who, um, I had to pursue. And there's something just inherently that turns me off about like someone who is like already too into me. It makes me feel like I hate myself when I think of someone liking me too much already. I'm like, Oh God, I don't deserve that.
0: You're at a level though, where that fangirl fangirling on you, her access to you is probably more limited than uh, the caller and the access that her fans have to her yeah. right now. Um, any advice for her on how to handle it in a way that doesn't turn somebody who's fangirling into not a fan <laughs> anymore? You know what's
1: funny well, is I, will,
10: it, I was going to say that I feel like it just popped into my head that in 2006 I was single as a Tegan and I. I lots of friends of mine were using dating apps and suggested I go on them. And I, and I, I was reluctant for the same reason Sarah just said, I don't want to be pursued, but I also was aware that even at that point, we were a notable enough band that fans would find me. And, and so I really, I actually feel really bad for the, for the caller, because no matter what size band you're in, if, if, there's some notoriety around you or fame around you, it it would be very difficult. And when I listened to the caller talking about her experience, I felt for her because the truth is, is that my advice would be that there's probably, uh, there's probably a reason to be made or, or, or it's like to say that she shouldn't be using a dating app if she doesn't want fans to find her or, She has to do it anonymously, which, of course, means she's a weirdo and no one would want to go on a date with her or choose her. So I feel like she might have to get creative. And in 2006, that's basically what I had to do. I I couldn't go on the dating app, so I had to be more creative. So she she might end up just having to use some sort of alternative method.
0: Like going out and meeting people face to face. (laughs) <laughs> i actually share your pain in some ways because i've been i've been with terry forever and there were no such things as dating apps when we met there was no such thing as the internet when we met and but so Dan,
10: don't you think if you guys were if you were sadly all of a sudden all all alone and and you weren't with terry anymore though like do you feel like you put yourself on an app i wouldn't
0: yeah i don't think i could i don't really think i could but right but I, but let's hope I'm not without Terry anytime soon. Let's hope that never happens. Yeah, no <laughs> let's go to the next question or the first question. Monogamy. Is it a discussion or is non-monogamy the default now? Do you guys have an opinion on that?
10: Yeah. Like in the last couple of years, I have dated a few different people and I will admit very proudly and openly that on first dates, I talk about the fact that I am not interested in seeing multiple people at the same time. Um, if I'm sleeping with someone. So I, I think that it's really terrifying and totally a turn off to like start a date by saying you can't see anyone else. But I think being open about the fact that, like for me personally, once I agree to go on a date with someone, I generally am very interested in them. I've spent a bit of time maybe talking with them or emailing with them and, um, so i usually know I, I am interested so for me personally i wouldn't necessarily say on a first date oh now you need to be monogamous cuz i also wouldn't sleep with someone on a first date but i think once i'm physically invested in something i i'm not interested in sharing that person with someone else cuz I, I i'm much more private and focused so
6: mm-hmm.
10: um again my i think my advice to the caller would be that You know, it's a a fine line. We hear hilarious stories about lesbians all the time because this is such a lesbian problem. Um, Maybe it's a girl problem is what it really is. Females want, you know, one partner, but I, not all of them, obviously, but we hear these funny stories all the time about lesbians who go on first dates and they declare that they're not interested in monogamy or the opposite. They say, I'm not interested um, in sleeping around or doing whatever. And either way, it scares people off. So I think it's got to be delicate, but I think you can definitely state your preferences that you're looking for a relationship or you're looking to invest in someone. And, you know, you can sort of put it out there, not so much directed at the person specifically, but just sort of showcasing your preference. I don't know if the caller's interested in monogamy or not, Mm -hmm. but I think stating a general preference, that's that's my MO for sure.
0: She says, you know, her question is, is monogamy a discussion, is non-monogamy the default? I think now, and I think this is a benefit that queer people have brought to straight people and straight relationships, is now the discussion should be the default. So that people are empowered to have a conversation yeah. about monogamy yeah. and monogamy or non monogamy should both be opt in positions. But you should have to have a conversation right. about it. So rather than regarding monogamy or non monogamy yeah. as a default setting, regard discussion as the default setting. That this is something you're gonna have to talk about and negotiate. Totally. totally. You know,
9: it's funny it's funny you say that too, Dan, because unlike Tegan, you know, the relationships that I've been in as an adult often have been fairly open in the beginning i I don't generally default to monogamy right away, and so um I think that's you've really nailed it. I just like the idea that you have to talk about it. I hate the idea that there's an expectation Definitely. before you've even had a conversation. i that would make me feel very caged and trapped. and I also think that there's something really interesting about having to sort of see yourself outside of the i don't know the standard heteronormative institution um of relationships and sex it's it's allowed me to like think a lot about what is what does monogamy even mean and what is it you know what are what are these what are these sort of um standards and expectations that we set for ourselves are people really happy with them and I love the idea of having conversations because I think that um the kind of at least for me as an adult I was gonna say just as
10: long as the conversation isn't too heavy-handed because that can be a turn-off I kissed a girl once on a first date and then she said to me immediately following the kiss, she said, I don't want to see other people like, <laughs> too much. And this girl, this the call, the caller just got out of a long relationship. I just think she should be advised of her <laughs> rights and responsibilities in a relationship. You can bring up the conversation and talk about monogamy, but do it in a way that doesn't seem insane.
0: Well, maybe the amendment to yeah. the discussion should be the default is, uh, but you don't have to have to that discussion immediately. Cause that does seem a little hurrying. No, It seems a little (laughs) you-holy if we can use the lesbianism about it. It does seem a little (laughs) you-holy to want to rush the discussion. Like hang out, you know, whether or not you're sleeping together yet, hang out, date, see if you like each other. At some point down the road, you can have a discussion about what kind of relationship it is you want and what kind of relationship it is indeed you two are having. And then if you're not on the same page about monogamy, maybe you pull the plug.
10: I like to showcase it almost as like, remember that like, at least for me, the goal when I first start dating is always about enticing. And like, I want to showcase the real me, but I also, I want to entice. I want to dress things up. I want it to be exciting. The first part of a relationship when you're uh, wooing someone is so exciting and thrilling and and you don't want to put a damper on that by being too heavy handed. I mean, and the truth is, is you don't know what you want anyway on a first date or a second date. So for me, it's about again sort of almost stating a preference without being too direct You're like i like to say things like i don't date a lot but when i do you know it's because i'm really excited about someone or i'm really intrigued and like so when i'm on that first date that person already feels like they're really special and i'm really interested in them you know mm-hmm. I, and so that's sort of like more of a like a light way of me saying i'm only focused on you without saying give me your phone number. I need to, or give me your phone. I need to delete every girl. Number on phone. Like, you know, like I, I don't really actually care again. Like until I'm physical with somebody, I don't really care if they are talking to other people or seeing other people. I just, um, you know, it's about, it's about making someone feel special and, and feeling special yourself. You know, I think maybe that's how I've always interpret, interpreted monogamy. It's not someone's my property. It's just that what we have is special and I don't want to share them, but I don't want to say that on the first date because that seems so insane
0: you know what i call that early stage of the relationship when you're sort of presenting your best self and you're you know really trying to impress that person i call it the potemkin baboon ass because you're creating this kind of potemkin village version of yourself and also presenting your big red baboon ass in a way you're presenting you're trying to entice them (laughs) and you're inflating yourself big red baboon ass style Yeah. so i would like to popularize that expression potemkin baboon ass that's what we should call early dating
1: gonna catch
0: on for sure (laughs) can you guys stick around for one more question Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Hey, Dan. This is a
11: 24-year-old straight male and a 20-year-old straight female. We've been dating for a couple months now, and she just found out. She's here right now, too. Hi. She found out that the conditioner I've had at my apartment, I live alone, she found out the conditioner I I have at my apartment is from my old ex-girlfriend from six months ago. I don't condition my hair, so it's just there. Is it weird that I still have it and let her use it? It's a ex- little weird. It's not weird. It's so I'm not weird. just gonna throw it away and buy some more. It's economical. It's not. But now I smell like his ex. It's not. I, I'm not. No. It's not like that. I'm not doing it so you smell like her. I'm doing it so you don't. I don't waste money
10: on a new one. That is that. Is that weird? Okay. Well, I'm gonna say. So I, I, you know, I've been dating someone for uh, less than a year, and actually, very recently, she came out of the guest bathroom with. Um, like a product, like a, a cream product or whatever, and was like, why do you have this? And I started to laugh and was like, I, I mean, I have no idea. I didn't buy that. It must have been my ex's. And she was like, oh, and went back into the bathroom and put it away. And I obsessed over it all night. And as soon as she left the next day, I went got it and threw it away. And I was like, oh, God. So I I feel like it is weird. I feel like...
0: Really? You
10: know, it's not like... Uh, like, I, I don't know. Like, it just feels like it's their product. It wasn't a product we shared. It was theirs. It's like... It's not like it's a it's something I don't know it's it's like especially with like creams and stuff, like it's such a like hair conditioner I don't know you're holding it naked I don't know I think it's just just go
1: fresh start
0: well what about the, the fact that you know here's this thing that your ex used and used in an intimate way and applied to her body but doesn't that standard also apply to you if you're going to get rid of everything that your ex touched in the house doesn't that include you or us <laughs> after we break up, like you have to discard everything. <laughs> well, oh my god, that's a couch your ex sat on. That's the mattress you fucked your ex on. Uh, that's the general your- thing.
10: So the, the product itself was gross. I was like, ew, it was like, had all these perfumes in it. It wasn't even something I would have. And it, technically, it is my guest bathroom, and I should, I feel like the products that are in there reflect me and what my preference is. So, if anything, it was just, it just felt. It's not something that I think a fight could happen over. Like, for instance, if in that scenario, the person I'm dating had been upset about it and been like, ew, and been upset, I would have been like, that's outrageous. Settle down. You know, like, backtrack. You're being crazy. Um, But I did think later on, I was like, I did want to remove, not, it's not even about removing the person from memory or from your history. It's, It's more just like it's a carryover. It would be like if I was wandering around in, you know, their clothes, mm-hmm. like, no, when you break up, you give your shit back. It's over.
9: I was going to, I was going to say too, that I, I, I heard the question and thought to myself, why did, I just was like, why did he keep it? Oh, he's a guy. Guys always just, they're just, <laughs> they don't, they just don't get rid of things. Like, they're just like, oh yeah, there's that conditioner that my ex-girlfriend left in the shower. Feel free to yeah. use that. Like, I just seem like such a typical dude, like straight dude thing to do. But I was going to say that I, regardless of exes, I'm just so specific about the kinds of products that I use. And I always date women who seem very (laughs) specific. Like my girlfriend and I have never shared shampoo or conditioner like we have very different hair and we have very different hair care needs so for me it's more just like the personal thing like i'm like if this girl is weirded out by it why doesn't she throw it away like what are they 12 like get new conditioner just throw it away (laughs) who
0: cares i think the key though uh, as you pointed out um i think sarah pointed out that if the person had been upset about it if the woman you were with now had been upset about finding your ex's product in the house that would have been a red flag and a bad sign because then that person would be going through your phone in two months making sure you deleted all photographs of your ex and blowing up and trying to control you and edit your history but this in this case like they're both yeah. laughing and joking about it obviously this is like yeah, a non-problem yeah. problem so there's no red flags here in the girlfriend's yeah. reaction but maybe I will concede the point maybe you know I'm a guy I would have left the conditioner there for eternity maybe I will concede the point and it should be it should be got rid of Tegan and Sarah thank you guys so much for jumping on the phone and congratulations on the new. What do they call them these days? I'm so old. Not CD, not album. Yeah. <laughs> love you. We don't to- know either. A bunch <laughs> of we are-
10: songs that stream. <laughs>
0: <laughs> a bunch of songs that stream. Love you to death. Everyone should get it and listen to it. Um, <laughs> literally, as I was uh, coming to work today, Terry was singing along to Boyfriend. The album is great, oh. and it was such a pleasure Thank to have you. you guys on. And I hope the tour brings you back to Seattle. We'd love to see you again.
11: Absolutely. Fantastic. Hi Dan and the tech savvy at rescues. I'm a cisgendered 27-year-old gay man living in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, I'm calling because I have a nephew who is 10 years younger than me. He's going to be 17 this year, who I suspect is gay. If my suspicions are correct, I want to make myself a support for him because I care about him, and I'm concerned that he lacks the support that he would need as a young gay man who is coming to terms with his identity. I want your advice on how to go about this. Some other relevant context is that my brother, his dad, and his mom divorced when he was two years old on bad terms. They continue to have a tenuous co-parenting relationship. My brother shares custody, but only sees him every other weekend. I live out of town, so the most that I, would, that I would see him would be probably three times a year, and that would just be for the afternoon or evening of a weekend day or a holiday. His entire family is comprised of straight Christians. His mother and his mother's family, I know, are conservative. At the very least, my sense is that the family lacks the knowledge on how to be supportive of a gay child, and at the worst, I think he is vulnerable to emotional, emotionally violent rejection if he were to come out. I thought I could come out to him and create a space for him to open up and share his feelings, but I hesitate to do so because I don't want his mother to retaliate against my brother. And I also don't know how my nephew would receive it because it's very possible that he doesn't consider us to have a close relationship.
0: Bankshot. Bankshot come out to this kid. Bankshot communicate to him that he has a gay uncle who will be there for him, not by addressing it directly. If you go to him and say, hey, I'm gay just in case you're gay. I wanted you to know I'm gay so that if you're gay, you can come to me about gay stuff. That might drive him deeper into the closet. If he's not ready yet to say I am gay, particularly because he worries about the reaction that he might get from the people that he lives with most of the time, the adult he is most dependent upon, his mother and her relatives – he might double down on the closet. He might panic and then say to you and say to his father that he is not gay and then feel self-conscious about having to walk that back a year from now or two years from now and then wait three or four years to walk that back. So what you do instead is talk to your brother. Hopefully you can talk to your brother about this. And the next time he's at your brother's for the weekend, go have dinner at your brother's. Bring a boyfriend, introduce that boyfriend to your brother and your nearly an adult nephew as your boyfriend and just be casually, openly yourself without making a point of coming out to him in a speech. Just be out in his presence and then he will know he has a gay uncle. Have a conversation with your brother and him at dinner. Just hang out and be yourself. And you're 27, he's 17. That's a 10-year gap that's relatively enormous, but it's not ginormous. It's not like you're 57 and you're talking about a 17-year-old relative. So it wouldn't be inappropriate if he's on Instagram or Twitter or whatever for you to follow each other or for you to follow him and occasionally leave a comment, an innocuous comment, not, hey, I like that picture of what you had for lunch. In case you're ever starting to suck dicks, you need someone to talk to, I'm here, dick sucking, you can talk to me anytime just remind him that you're out there and that there is this way that he can reach you. If he should want to reach out to you.
12: Hi, Dan, I'm a 46 year old straight married white male in Vancouver, BC, and I have a mother-in-law problem. My wife and I have been married for 25 years and we have one child. My father-in-law died in 2002 when he was 52. My mother-in-law Linda was devastated I ran my own business since the age of 21, but it tanked in 2008. My wife works full-time at a government job while I'm a stay-at-home dad. We could not make ends meet without Linda's help. My wife and I both suffer with clinical depression, and Linda's hard work has helped us through some pretty bad times. I have just recovered from a two-year-long illness that was draining, but forced me to finally act like a grown-up, financially and otherwise. Linda is physically present in my home 50% of the time and has slowly become my de facto spouse. My wife works long hours and comes home to crash and do it all over again tomorrow. She relies on Linda for almost everything and together they make for a textbook case of codependency. I'm not pointing fingers as I'm the third leg of that codependent triangle and I could never be accused of being alpha or assertive or 100% reliable in any way until now. With my illness, my wife's depression, and the living situation, sex has evaporated from my marriage. It has become a Thanksgiving and Christmas sort of deal. Now that I am rebuilding my life, the support system that Linda provided is starting to hinder us as much as help us, at least from my perspective I am philosophically a marathon runner in life and have no logical reason to hurt the people I love by acting out sexually. My cock is a sprinter, though, and is still as hungry for gold in the 100-meter fuck-olympics as he ever was. I have dealt with this by seeing an escort about twice a year and trying same-sex hookups with about the same frequency, but I am broke and I just don't enjoy sex with men. Linda is also a marathon runner, and I'd say I presently stand about a 50-50 chance of hitting the tape before she does. I am 46, Dan, and the idea that the day I discover that I can't get it up anymore will be the same day I'm laying a wreath on a new headstone frightens me more than global warming or Ebola or ISIS or Donald Trump. How can I float the idea of Linda scaling back her efforts so my wife and I can reclaim some territory in our marriage without me sounding like the most ungrateful asshole of all time? I've come through a lot to throw my marriage away on one more hooker or a twink on grinder. My dick thinks otherwise.
0: Help? Let's take Linda out of this equation entirely. This woman to whom you should be very grateful. It sounds like you are grateful, but you're... Dick is in the way, clouding your thinking. Take her out. Just subtract her from this circumstance. And what are you left with? You're a stay-at-home dad just recovering from a two-year-long illness and not able to work during that time and struggling financially, get on your feet, and your family is struggling financially, and your wife is working a government job and... Working hard and working long days and coming home and falling into bed and then getting up the next day, as you said, and doing it all over again. Even if there was no mother in law, even if there were no Linda lurking or coming by the house, helping you keep it together, you and your wife would not be fucking given that set of circumstances. Your long illness, your failed business, stay at home dad, financially struggling family, wife working over time and exhausting yourself to make ends meet. That is a a scenario that I've heard a million times where there's not a lot of sex going on and there's no mother-in-law. So stop focusing your rage or your anger or stop pinning the blame on blameless, lovable, helpful Linda. This ain't about her. You and your wife need to have a conversation. You need to go to her and say, I miss our sexual connection. I miss sex and I miss you and I miss our sexual connection. And we have got to carve out the time to be intimate. We have got to find the time for us to fuck for us to, maybe your wife doesn't like it when you put it that crudely. That's how I would say it to my husband. Maybe you would say it a different way for us to be intimate, for us to make love, whatever it is that she would like to hear or would prefer to hear, whatever phrasing would work better with your wife. Put it that way. And rather than regard Linda as the impediment to that happening, you should regard Linda as something that could enable you and your wife reconnecting sexually. You can fuck outside the house while Linda looks after the kids. If Linda is the babysitting kind, a mother-in-law who will swing in and do for and take care of, tap that. Don't tap that. I'm not saying you should... (laughs) fuck your (laughs) mother-in-law sometimes i forget that tap that is a a euphemism for going fuck that i meant ask for that rely on that make use of that take advantage as my mother advised terry and i do take advantage of that and go to linda and say we want to go out and have dinner tonight me and the wife important for us to stay in love important for us to get some time alone together and then don't fucking have dinner park the car somewhere and fuck or go to her office after hours and fuck or just go somewhere get a cheap hotel room if you can afford it and fuck and then go home grab some Arby's on the way home so that technically you did have dinner and you're not going to roll into the house starving but Linda isn't the problem here she really isn't your exhaustion is the problem But Linda isn't the problem here. Exhaustion is the problem. And there are other problems that so many other couples and long-term relationships with kids are facing that you two are facing. You have an advantage that other couples in your circumstance do not have, which is this mother-in-law who is helpful, who you should be grateful to for her assistance and her presence. Go to the wife. Talk to the wife. Stop defaulting to sex workers. Stop taking the easy sleazy out of sex workers and twinks on grinder, and go to your wife, and carve out the time, find the time.
13: Hi, Dan. I'm the tech savvy at rescues. I'm a 25 year old woman. I've been in a wonderful relationship with my boyfriend for the last year, and we just recently got engaged. However, four months before I met my boyfriend, so about a year and a half ago now. I met a random guy in a tattoo shop. We went out for dinner. We ended up sleeping together. After that interaction, I felt pretty turned off by him because the sex was really bad and I broke it off. But a week after our initial hookup, I saw him in the street and he was a little bit drunk and he asked me, can you walk me home, which was nearby. Um, In retrospect, I really regret agreeing to walk him home because once we entered Um, his building. He pushed me against the wall and said that he was going to shove his cock into my ass. I was really disgusted and scared. And so I began to cry. I pushed him off of me. I said, I do not want to have sex with you. Um, He laughed at me and ended up punching me in my mouth. And I had to escape from his building and Yeah, so it was a really traumatic um, physical assault by this man that I didn't really know, felt that I was nearly raped. But after this, I just decided to speak to my therapist and to block this guy who did that to me on all social media and let it fade away and try to get over it. Well, then I met my boyfriend a few months later, and he is also working in the tattoo world. And many times over our relationship, he's expressed, that he really dislikes girls who, quote unquote, sleep around in the tattoo world. So being that I had heard that from him and that this experience for me was something that I just didn't really want to talk about, I didn't tell him about it until last week when I just blurted it out. Um, I was feeling really guilty for keeping a secret from my man and for the subsequent lies that I told him to try to avoid that I ever knew this guy who is in his same work industry. My boyfriend freaked out. He threw my engagement ring off of our fifth floor balcony into a street. Um, He called me a slut, um, a trashy whore, and a cliche American. So we got in a really big fight. It was uh, horrible. I really saw that my boyfriend had some some demons and some anger issues that I hadn't seen before. But... Um, over the last week, we've started to patch things up. He wants to get engaged again. He wants to get a new ring. He's he's given me a lot of heartfelt apologies. Um, and he said that he understands why I didn't tell him about the experience and that, you know, he's just disappointed because he's going to have to swallow his his anger and his hatred for that guy when he sees him out at a conference or in the street. And he told me that he just He just feels like i have a bad reputation in his work i don't know what to do i don't know if i should get engaged again to my boyfriend i feel like his response to me was really sexist and really borderline abusive but i do love him so i'm really conflicted i would so appreciate your help
0: just to recap you were sexually assaulted and very nearly raped A couple of months, a few months before you met this guy who within a year proposed to you and then when you opened up to him about this assault, about this traumatic experience at 12 months, 12 months into your relationship with him, which seems like not an unreasonable time to – disclose something like this hey i was raped by someone in your industry or nearly raped by someone in your industry isn't something you blurt out on a first date necessarily it's not something you're obligated to disclose to someone you barely know and you disclose this and you feel terribly guilty about how long you waited and you shouldn't not at all you shouldn't feel guilty at all about having waited that's something that you tell someone that you've come to trust not somebody you've just met And he reacts by calling you a slut. He reacts by telling you that you have a bad reputation in his industry of rapey shitbags. I'm not saying all tattoo artists are rapey shitbags. I take that back. I retract that. In his little circle within that industry where everyone's a rapey shitbag, in that particular corner or pocket of Tattoo Land where he lives, you have a bad reputation. Because this asshole tried to rape you in a stairwell. You're the bad guy. And he throws your engagement ring Out the window and he breaks up with you? Reminds me of that famous Maya Angelou quote, when someone shows you who they are, believe them the first time. He showed you who he was at that moment. Sexist, violent, irrational, controlling, misogynistic. Slut-shamey, rape-culture-saturated, poisoned piece of... X, piece of shit, piece of X, should be your X. You gotta believe him. What happens if you stay with this man? What happens if you take him back? You're a young woman in this culture, in this world. What do you think the odds are that some other man at some point in the future is going to behave inappropriately toward you on a bus, on a subway, on a street, in a stairwell, in an airport? The odds are, unfortunately, pretty high. Are you going to be able – are you going to feel comfortable going to your perhaps then husband if you marry this guy, if you make the mistake of marrying this guy, and confiding in him about what just happened to you? No. No, you're not going to be able to go to him for support. What happens if you got assaulted, raped by someone else, beaten, and you go home to what? What will you be going home and expecting at that moment? This isn't someone who's going to take your side. This isn't someone who you can expect as a matter of course, his love and support and empathy and compassion. This is someone that you are going to have to tiptoe around for the rest of your life in fear of how he might react the next time you are victimized by some rapey asshole man. You say you love him. I'm sure there are parts of this person that are attractive Parts of his character that are admirable. No one is a shit in every respect in every dimension. But this is disqualifying level crap. His reaction. Disqualifying perhaps not of your fond remembrance. Not of your affection. But disqualifying of making a commitment. Disqualifying of being in a relationship with you or really any other woman that should be disqualifying. You have to end this. You have to... Break up with him. Don't accept another ring from him. Run from him.
14: Hi, um, this is a comment for um, the woman in episode 510 who was wondering whether she could decline the invitation to the wedding. Uh, I'm getting married on Labor Day weekend, like thousands of your listeners, I'm sure, and I bet we all can agree that when you're making your guest list, you get a little nostalgic. You put on people from your past. But believe me, every time I get a decline from one of them, I do a little dance. Because it means I can invite someone else. And almost certainly, the woman in question has a B-list of people she'd really like to invite, but hasn't been able to. So I think your caller should decline, should go drink a margarita, and her friend will be happy. Send a little note saying how sad you are, you can't make it. That's all that's necessary.
1: Hi, Dan. I'm calling about the Canadian who is dating a suspected virgin, My words to him are, let her go. It sounds to me like you are not interested in going slowly with her or giving her the time it takes to explore her own sexuality, if, in fact, she even is a virgin, which you have not even verified. It sounds like you would be happier with a known and experienced fuck buddy. And yes, in my opinion, you indeed are an asshole.
8: Hi, Dan. I'm calling for the Canadian in episode 510. Uh, I was a slightly older virgin zombie that was fucked back to life by a man who was very sexually confident and experienced. Crawl into bed with her and find out if she's right for you, assuming she wants to fuck you. She's not going to unpop your cherry or steal your godly lovemaking powers. And don't forget, even you, the varsity expert, could learn something from her.
0: And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you want to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Tegan and Sarah on Twitter. And speaking of Twitter, Ellie Badesh tweets, Day Off Cup, hashtag SavageLove, hashtag FuckFirst, and included a picture of her FuckFirst First. Savage Love official swag mug. You can get the Savage Love mug, a fuck first mug at thestranger.com slash savage swag. Get your Christmas shopping done now in the summer. And a big thank you to Aaron Gibson and Brian Safi for tackling the top of the show rant this week. Be sure to listen to their podcast, Throwing shame The Savage Love Cast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at-risk you then, Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for having